um, add a device in Bluetooth, right? Make sure your device is turned on and discoverable. They'll edit this out, not to worry. <laughs> it's amazing what editors can do, Abby, as you probably are learning. <laughs> yes. Okay, it says your device is ready to go. Uh, connected. I'm Abby Disney, and you're listening to All Ears, my podcast about inequality. Each week, I get to call up some of the smartest and best people I know, and maybe even some I don't. We talk about the hot mess we've made of the economy and how this pandemic might just be our chance to understand and address some of the huge problems Americans are facing. we got to start somewhere and sometime. So why not here and why not now? Okay, so here we go. I'm so excited about my guest today, partly because he's kind of my friend and we were neighbors for a long time and I'm really missing his beautiful smile in the lobby and his beautiful bulldog. He is the president of the Ford Foundation. But really, Darren Walker has done some of the best and most profound thinking about inequality that I know of. And long before COVID, he was talking about battling inequality through philanthropy. And so we're going to talk about that. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your guest. And I miss you, too. And so does Mary <laughs> Lou. Um, she Aww. always enjoys seeing you and um, your family in the building. But um, yeah. life moves on. And uh, I'm happy, life though, that does. we get this chance to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. So let's maybe start with your background, where you came from, and how you went from a small Texas town to, to you know, probably the, one of the biggest philanthropy jobs on earth. Well, Abby, I don't know if it's the biggest philanthropy job on earth, but it's <laughs> one that I'm honored uh, to hold. My journey has in some ways been um, a function of the generosity of philanthropists, and as well a function of a government that believed that little boys and girls who lived in low-income, poor, um, and sometimes challenging environments deserved an education. We lived in a small town, Ames, Texas, population 1,200, and my mom and sister and I lived in a little shotgun shack of a house, maybe 500 square feet, and a woman turned up in our yard and said she was there to tell uh, my mom about a new government program called Head Start. Wow. So I had the great um, benefit and privilege of being in the first a class of Head Start in the summer of 1965. Mm -hmm. With that experience, my um, thirst for knowledge and my love of reading and my curiosity uh, was sparked. And I owe so much to President Johnson and Lady Bird, who had a vision for ending poverty in America and understood from their rural Texas experience what poverty looked like, even though they were privileged, they understood. And this program, which in fact was piloted in New Haven with mm -hmm. support from the Ford Foundation, uh, was taken oh, wow. to scale. And so in some ways, being president of the Ford Foundation is truly coming home. 
Wow. That's a beautiful story because you're talking about a circle in a lot of ways, which feels to me like a better um, a way for a society to function, right? I believe um, we have to really understand the structures that produce so much inequality and the way in which our systems are designed to generate inequality. That's why when I read something that Dr. Martin Luther King said in 1968 about philanthropy, I was astonished because it was so powerful. And what he said was the following. Philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. Um, And and that's our focus. You know, I was going to read you that quote. I have it right down on a piece of paper next to me because it really is kind of extraordinary how he put that into words so long before anyone else had put it into words. And that's why I love your title of your book that talks about From Generosity to Justice, because we do really want to think of ourselves as generous people, and that's great, but that's about how we feel. Philanthropy has always been in part about the philanthropist. We know from the research that when you write a check or put money in the Salvation Army bucket, um, there are these enzymes that go off in your brain and you feel good about yourself. We want that to happen. What moving from generosity to justice does is it actually makes the giver, the donor, the philanthropist uncomfortable because you are engaging in the questions of Dr. King's admonition to philanthropists. Why is this person uh, on the street homeless or unemployed? Could there be something wrong with the system? Yeah, and I, I, I know from you know my life that um, the, the very first impulses around philanthropy have to do with kind of negating a bad feeling. Everybody thinks that you should never, ever feel guilty about anything. And I think it's been maybe the most constructive emotion I've, I've worked with in my life because it was motivating. And it, and it forced me not just to hand out the money to the hungry people and so forth, but to stop and say, wait a minute, why are they hungry? So that dialogue is what a justice frame requires of the philanthropist, which is very difficult because philanthropists are by nature privileged people. And privilege buys you insularity from having to engage in these kinds of uncomfortable, dark and and, and unappealing conversations. Darren, you have kind of come from the world of money yourself. I mean, not just the years you spent in banking, but also you went off to the the development corporation in Harlem. How has your attitude toward money changed over the years? Well, Abby, you and I started in different places in the world because I think you, I think, always felt uh, guilty and that you weren't worthy of just all of this bounty that just by sheer luck of name and lineage came your way. And you 
your entire life, I think, have sincerely and, and deeply, profoundly grappled with that privilege. I um, always wanted to have money, not gobs of money. I grew up with my mother uh, always worried about whether she would have money to pay the rent or the utilities not being shut off or the car not being repossessed. These were um, features in my life until I literally went away to, to college. I was so scarred by that experience that I knew I needed to seek financial security. I didn't need wealth, but I did want to not be worried uh, the way my mother was. So I came to New York. I went to, to Wall Street and uh, I was a banker and I did relatively well and I'm uh, happy about that. But that was not what I wanted to do in terms of my life's work. I was always interested in uh, my community and what I needed to do to make it better. What have you seen come into focus um, since COVID-19? COVID has revealed the people who are most vulnerable in our society today are the people who have always been most vulnerable in our society. And so um, when you look at the health disparities, it, it isn't a surprise that um, the people who are most likely to die of COVID-19 are Black and brown people, because black and brown people are the least likely to have access to a primary care physician, the least likely to be engaged in preventative medicine. This virus is is like a heat-seeking virus for poor people and black and brown people in this country. I'm on so many phone calls and so many Zoom meetings lately with people who say, this is our chance. We can reset. There's, there's a way to change this. But we're all locked in our houses, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is this a chance to reset? And if so, what would that look like? How would that work? How would we go about resetting? We uh, must have a recognition by our leaders that something needs to change. Mm. I actually don't want to restart the old uh, economy that we had. Um, I want an economy that can be more generative of opportunity for more people, not fewer people. And I believe we're going to uh, have to have a reckoning in this country of who we are as America. Are we the generous, um, thoughtful people who uh, believe that opportunity should abound in this country? Or are we going to uh, turn off that escalator and say that people who haven't gotten on it already aren't going to get on it? Um, and I think if we move in that direction as a country, uh, it will lead to a calamity that is far worse than this pandemic. It, you know, you say that you, you believe in capitalism. 
Um, and, you know, we have that significant chunk, especially of younger people who are saying capitalism is irreparable and, and inherently problematic. Well, it doesn't surprise me that uh, large swaths of young people question the efficacy of capitalism as a way to organize an economy. For me, I have written pretty extensively about the failure of capitalism in the last decades to deliver shared prosperity. And capitalism in uh, most of my adult years has delivered inequality. It has delivered more uh, hopelessness and more insecurity, all of which contribute to a weakening of people's uh, trust and belief in their institutions. And ultimately, capitalism, if not changed, will sink our democracy. And of course, the pandemic has uh, exacerbated what was already a system that quite honestly was it was broken. Well, okay, let me let me just go backwards for a second. Do you do you think that the capitalism we are currently living is different than it was before? Well, capitalism has definitely changed in my lifetime. And I think there are reasons for that we design systems, whether they're economic systems or justice systems or education systems. And those systems, by their design, get us what we got for a reason. So what I mean by that is that there were decisions, choices that were made that changed uh, our allocation of capital towards management and compensation of executives. For example, in 1982, the SEC uh, changed a, a policy on stock repurchases by companies. Until then, stock repurchases were considered manipulation of the, the, the shares. In changing that, so making that choice that then triggered what is now common practice of companies prioritizing its capital to buy back shares of its own company, right? Of its own stock. And, and there are things like that that were designed into the system uh, that created the imbalance that we see today the way in which labor has lost so much ground is not by happenstance. There have been intentional political and policy uh, decisions that, that brought about those outcomes. Yeah, and, and we have for a long time just accepted as Americans the idea that the, the wide inequality that we're now looking at is just a sort of necessary side effect of the free market, right? That was Andrew Carnegie's idea when he wrote the uh, famous uh, Gospel of Wealth in 1889. In it, he said there was nothing wrong with inequality. Um, it was, as you say, Abby, it was just a, it's a byproduct of a system that works 
And our job as philanthropists is to uh, take the proceeds of that inequality and seek to ameliorate the conditions of people who mm-hmm. are harmed by it. Philanthropy is a funny word, right? It, it really does um, make people feel like you're talking about some kind of swanky club that everybody's not in. When I was just starting out, there tended to be no funding for things like activism and organizing and advocacy because you couldn't really actually tell me the number of people who were changed by what you were doing. Do you you think that all the emphasis on measurement and evaluation was good for philanthropy? I think that much damage has been done by the idea of quote-unquote strategic philanthropy. This notion that a group of foundation staff and technocrats can design theories of change and expect that the desired outcomes will be achieved. We privilege the highly credentialed class in philanthropy over the wisdom and knowledge that comes from living in, living with, and being impacted by the problem. And so the people who are closest to the problems are the people who most likely can help design the solutions. But unfortunately, they are often the last consulted in the design of the solution. And it's one of the reasons why the uh, roads of villages in Africa and the uh, streets and slums um, in favelas are filled with the detritus of, of past failed development initiatives because these programs were done and, and placed in and put upon uh, people rather than engaging them in the first place. While I believe uh, in accountability and metrics, we have to ask ourselves, what are we measuring for? And is everything that matters metricable? And I can just off the top of my head name things like our support beginning in the 90s uh, for a project uh, on Sally Hemings at um, Monticello. At the time, the narrative about Sally Hemings was that she was was basically a concubine, but that she was not uh, Jefferson's, but that there were all the other men. Yes, she had these mulatto, quote unquote, uh, children, but they were not Jefferson's. One of the greatest moments uh, of my time at Ford was being uh, two summers ago uh, on the lawn at Monticello with 300 of the Hemings descendants and to see the opening of the Sally Hemings exhibition there. Mm. I ask myself, how would we measure Sally Hemings getting her dignity back? How would we put into uh, a metric Uh, The fact that America is coming to grips and must come to grips with its racial history and and that investments like this contribute to that. How would we measure that? 
Yeah. You know, I often think about the Highlander School and all of the effect that school had on civil rights in this country. For people who don't know what it was, it was a it was a folk school that was established in rural Tennessee, and they taught civil disobedience. They taught the organizing and tactics and strategy. Rosa Parks attended. Martin Luther King did many, many, many of the leading lights in the civil rights movement. Of course, it's like one of the great crimes that we treat Rosa Parks as though she was just sort of some kind of natural. She was tired. She sat down on the bus. She was sitting down strategically. She had a plan. She was thinking about it. Um, but I keep asking myself, would a place like Highlander find funding in contemporary philanthropy? I think the challenge for philanthropy today is that we don't invest in institutions. And what we get enamored of in contemporary philanthropy is the uh, social entrepreneur who has the coolest idea or the app developer who has figured out some tactical way to improve uh, water and sanitation or whatever it may be, which is all important, but without an understanding of the role of institutions over time, Mm -hmm. when you are seeking social justice, social change. And I can think about uh, such an institution, the uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, the LDF as it's known. We were making grants to the LDF in the 1960s in support of its litigation against the states of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia to Uh, demand access to voting by Blacks who were denied access, whose votes were suppressed through all kinds of subterfuge and poll taxes and literacy tests and all sorts of things. We literally just made a round of grants to the LDF for lawsuits in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia on the issue of voter suppression. And and I say that to say, if you are working on social justice, if in a democracy you are working on uh, ideas of social change, you can never take for granted that progress will be permanent. And therefore, you must have institutions that are resilient and durable and ready at the drop of a hat for whatever the the challenge may be. And so thank God for the LDF. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of w- w- people talking about getting back to normal, um, but nothing was normal about where we were before. Um, so You're so I, right. Yeah. Abby, I'm getting a signal that I have an 11 o'clock Zoom call that I'm hosting. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. No, don't be sorry. I'm sorry. This is a great conversation, Abby. I want to thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Thank you. And it's my job to thank you. Anyway, you've usurped my job of thanking you. (laughs) You are wonderful, Darren Walker. You really, truly are. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Abby. I enjoyed it and I send lots of love to you. Thank you.
To keep up with Darren and his work at the Ford Foundation, follow him on Twitter at Darren Walker. And if you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to check out Darren's book, From Generosity to Justice, A New Gospel of Wealth, which can be found wherever books are sold. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening.